Good morning. Good morning. Can I have the mic to Craig, please? Thank you very much. Um, if you're visiting, welcome, welcome. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. Oh, this is, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, to begin, to begin, um, I'm going to ask Craig to come up and actually read. We're looking at James chapter 2 this morning. And so I'm going to get, if you're not open, I have no PowerPoint for you today. So that means everyone's got to follow along in their Bibles. So um, turn to James chapter 2. And we're going to read the first little portion there from verse 1 down to verse 13. Favoritism forbidden. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your, your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming? blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you should not murder. If you do not commit adultery, and do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thanks very much, Craig. If you just want to bow your head with me and we'll open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you now we have the privilege of opening it up and allowing you to teach us by your spirit. I pray you might help us to heed what you have to say to us, that you'll embolden us and empower us to obey the convictions you lay upon each of our hearts. Um, help us to respond accordingly. Give us soft, tender, and moldable hearts in your hands this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those who don't know, we've been going through the book of James, and James is a very practical book. And this is what we talked about, or I shared a little bit yesterday at the leaders' retreat that we have. We have a tendency of having a list of things, and in the knowledge of that list, we end up using that list as a tool by which it becomes the be-all and end-all of our, uh, of our existence, basically, as Christians. And so my encouragement to you is, as we look at the book of James, Yes, we are given practical things on how to live and what to do and how we are to conduct ourselves, but I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that all of those things are for the purpose of, of strengthening your relationship. That's the focus of everything that we look at here. Because you see everything that Jesus has done, 
is exemplified in the book of James. It's, if you wanted to look at through the book of James and make a list of things, so we've looked at James chapter 1 so far, and for example, the, the first point was he, Jesus counted it all joy in the midst of persecution and in trial. We are told to count it all joy when we face diverse trials in James chapter 1 verse 2. Jesus exemplified that Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 when it when it talks about that the joy that was set before him endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the father on high see he looked beyond the persecution he looked beyond the trial and he saw the ultimate result when I talked about a few weeks ago in regards not to be deceived by our inadequacies, well, you look at the person of Jesus Christ. We are told in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, what? That the fullness of the Godhead dwells in human form bodily. So the, the fullness of who God is is once again exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ. When we looked at trial and temptation, what we see is in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, what we see is Jesus, as he prays, he says what? He submits to his Father's will and says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. You see that exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, last week, when we talked about the example of, of not giving it, being self-controlled over an emotional reaction, that was once again exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ. You see that, and we shared verse 23, sorry, verse 34 of Luke chapter 23 was when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He didn't react emotionally. He saw the bigger picture. When he was a doer of God's will and a completer of God's work in John chapter 5, verse 19, which was shared last week once again, that he is here not to do his own will, but he does whatever he sees his father doing. And the final point from last week was that how ultimately he valued people he valued people because the ultimate goal in his ministry was to bring people into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What is it? Luke 19, verse 10, when he says, For the Son of Man has came to seek and to save the lost. You see, we looked at these six points over the last six weeks from the book of James, and you see every one of those points exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know what a godly life looks like, if you want to know how to live in a, in a way that is in submission to a will far greater than his own, if you want to know how that actually is looked out practically, you see this in the person of Christ. And that's why it's the encouragement for you and I to spend time in this because you see in this how a life is to be lived. Now we use, we use the excuse, but he's Jesus. He's Jesus. I mean, he was sinless. He was God's son. And you know what? God's son lives in me. You know what? We are told that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens. We are told that in Christ we lack nothing. So for us to sit there and say, well, I can't because, well, come on, man. That, for my sake, I think that's a bit of a lame excuse that I use to justify my willingness not to live in accordance to his word. And so you see this, and, and as you see this reality lived out, we have to remember that the only way all the things we've looked at in the book of James so far and the things we will continue to look at in the book of James can only be accomplished if firstly you are in Jesus. 
It is important that you have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's where it starts, that you are born again of the Spirit of God. And we see this exemplified in the life of Jesus as we look at James. As we go through this, I want you to think about instances in the Gospels of where Jesus exemplifies this of where Jesus manifests this in the way he lives. For example, in chapter 1, we read this. Sorry, in verse 1 of chapter 2, we read this. This is from the ESV. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 says this, For God does not show favoritism. And the old King James, it says, God is not a respecter of persons. Meaning, as like the ESV says here, there is no partiality on God's part. He doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't view people one way or one benefit over another. And it's exemplified once again in the conduct of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, when you look at how he conducted himself, he was not swayed by a person's social standing. He was not swayed by a person's career. He was not influenced by an individual's wealth, gender, or ethnicity. As far as Jesus was concerned on how he saw humanity was in terms of life and in terms of death. That's it. Those that knew him and those that didn't. I always remember Ravi Zacharias, and I've quoted this before, when a person says, Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That's why he came. And you see this as the way he he works in people's lives, the way he interacted with people's lives. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, we read about his conduct towards who? A leper, an outcast. And the acceptance that Jesus, he didn't show favoritism. He did not see a man that was just sick. He saw a man in need of being made whole. And so he did that. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through to 28, we read of the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and asks for for help. And what was Jesus' response? He says, I've come for the lost sheep of Israel. Like, you know, the master of the house doesn't give the food to dogs. Her response, ah, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Jesus' response, he heals her. He works, you know, he he mentions her faith. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through to 20, we read about the demoniac full of demons and how everybody was afraid of him. What does Jesus do? Jesus heals him and casts demons into pigs. Mark chapter 14, verse 9, you have the sinful woman who comes in when Jesus was having a meal with Simon the Pharisee, comes in and then comes before Jesus and anoints his feet. And Jesus accepts her. Luke 7, 1 to 10, the centurion's request. The centurion, remember a Roman, the people that were oppressing the people of Israel? He makes a request on behalf of a servant. What does Jesus do? He uses him not only as an example for us about faith and authority, he heals that man's servants and, and, and honors his request. In, in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, we read about Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the bane of people's existences. The people, these were the turncoats. These were the people that would, nah, man, we don't want anything to do with a tax collector. What does Jesus do? Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your place. He invites himself over for a feed and brings salvation to that household. You read in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, what? 
about the teaching of Nicodemus who steals away at night and hears the truth of the gospel and realizes how blind he was, even being a religious man that kept to the law, found out how far he fell short. And in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 41, which is chapter 4, we read of the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well that Jesus goes out of his way to minister to. Do you see favoritism in any of those things? No. What I see is our Lord and Savior recognizing the needs of people, sinners in need of salvation, people who are lost in need to be found, people that were dead and need to be made alive, people that are unrighteous to be made righteous. That's what Jesus saw. And the, the actual condemnation, not even the condemnation, but the challenge that James is bringing to these people here is, says, don't show favoritism. Don't be partial in how you deal with people. Why would he do that? Why would he actually challenge the church not to show favoritism? Because you read in verses 2 down to 4, if a man wearing a gold ring, so he, he makes the differentiation. He talks about how, man, when you've got a, when you've got a man that's rich, when you've got a boss, when you've got someone like Uncle James who walks in and he's got his gold ring on his pinky and he's sitting there and he comes walking in and people are like, oh, it's James. Hey, James, come take this seat. And then you've got Jono who walks in, dressed how he is. And he would sit there and he goes, oh, it's Jono. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming along. Can you sit at the back there? Can you sit there? This seat's for James. That's yours back there. Can, can I get you to swap seats? Now, why is that so important for him to actually make mention of? And why use that specific example? Because it was common practice back in those days for pagan religions, even just society in general, to do this. Timothy Keller makes mention of this of what differentiated Christianity from every other belief system back in those days. Why? Because the church would have women come in and do stuff that these other places wouldn't. The church would have rich people hanging out with poor people where other belief systems wouldn't. Which is really quite interesting because a lot of people accuse us of being exclusive and yet the, the demonstration of the church, the first century church, the kingdom of God, is that it's the, the most inclusive belief system of all. That it didn't matter who you were, didn't matter what you had, it didn't matter what you possessed, whatever. It was like if you knew Christ... That was what bound you together as family. One commentator put it this way. He said the first century church was counter-cultural in its endeavor to break down class distinctions. In the early church, a man of influence could find himself rubbing shoulders with a slave. In fact, a slave could even be his elder. And a slave owner who might serve the Lord's Supper to his slave. Such unusual social behavior shocked those who lived by the prevailing mindset of the day. Many caving into social pressure felt compelled to give special treatment to those who were esteemed outside of the church. Once again, that even though the church sat there and, and sought to be different, how we allow the world to influence our values and our views of other people, as opposed to holding closely to this and to what the Word of God says. See, it's significant because the church is to be and should continue to be an inclusive body that didn't differentiate or that doesn't differentiate on class, wealth, gender, ethnicity, body type, body color. Nothing matter. It should not do that. If we are in Christ, then we are family. 
If we are in Christ, then it doesn't matter who fellowships with who because we are bound by the blood of Jesus. The poor fellowship with the rich, the slaves mingled with the slave owners, the Jews gathered around the word with the Gentiles. For all the beliefs of that day, it was in Christ, all people are made one. Galatians chapter 3 verses 27 and 28 says this, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, the exhortation that James gives this church here, I think is applicable to us as well. I think, I think this can be our sin too. I think we unintentionally might show favoritism or partiality to those within the church. You see, we talk about inclusivity we talk about being welcoming. We talk about being a blessing and taking in all sorts. Um, but the trap we can fall into is that we allow our own pride, our own arrogance, or just, just our own selfishness to come to the forefront in our relationships with others. Intentionally or unintentionally, we can favor and accept or show favoritism and reject others for things that are not biblical I don't know if you have ever done this but it can be manifest in so many different ways whether we are intimidated by somebody because of their job that's that's a type of favoritism I won't talk to this person because they're a lawyer I won't talk to that person because they run their own business I will talk to this person because they look more my type. Have you ever done this? Where And this is where I really love my, uh, one, one of the ladies from my church back in New Zealand, Bianca Adler. She was an amazing woman, little old Jewish woman. She's absolutely amazing where she didn't care. I, I saw her walk up to bikers, like gang members, and say, I want to give you a gift and give them a gospel track to tell them about Jesus. They start swearing at her, throwing it down, and she just goes, Jesus loves you. And I thought, I'm, I'm sitting there going, seriously? But you see what we, have you noticed, have you done this in your own heart where you will determine who to share with and who not to share with? Have you determined in your own heart, I will not share the gospel with this person because they look scary? I won't share it with this person because they're too young. I won't share it with this person because they're too old. Or they're a family member, or they're an auntie or an uncle. You know what you're doing there? You're showing partiality. And you're using it as a means by which you are not being obedient to the person of Jesus Christ and the call he's placed on your life. That's exactly what that is, no matter how you seek to justify it. The thing is, we are to be all-inclusive because the gospel applies to everybody. As Alison shared this morning, it is a gift available to all people. He loves all humanity, and the means by which all humanity find out about his great love is through us. It's through us. Does he have to? No. But he's allowed us to. He's allowed us to be a part of that. Okay, so this is why after he challenges them with that, instead of showing favoritism, I like the encouragement that he gives in verse 8. 
He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You see, this is a standard lived out by Jesus, taught to his disciples, and exemplified in numerous ways. When I say exemplified in numerous ways, you look at how John, in, in John 5, Jesus heals the man at Bethsaida, the pool with the five porches, uh, to the desperate call of blind Bartimaeus of Mark chapter 10, uh, which I really like when, when Jesus walks past and you've got this blind guy who's crying out, who calls out, and people are like, shh, quiet, quiet. What does he do? He gets even louder. And he gets even louder to catch Jesus' attention. To the woman with the issue of blood in Matthew chapter 9, the follower of Jesus Christ is different in how we see people because Jesus was different in how he saw people. You look at that and how he treated children. I think that's one of the greatest, one of the greatest examples. And I've done this and uncles and aunties have done this and parents have done this when it's always been where the kids have wanted to get involved with something and the parents are always go away the adults are talking go away the the adults are busy we're talking adult stuff we're doing adult things we're talking money talking bills which we usually don't as adults usually it's talking sport or talking food but I didn't know that I only discovered what my parents were talking about when I became an adult and then when I sit there I realise wow that was the important stuff I was always kicked out of house for. But see, what did Jesus do? Don't stop them. Bring them to me. Allow them to come to me. So how we interact with people is once again following the example that Jesus gives us. You want to know how we are to interact? And, and this is what I like. If you turn, it's to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through to 32. This is practical instruction and how we are to conduct ourselves once again along the lines of what the Lord Jesus Christ has set for us. Once again, you see all of this exemplified in the life of Jesus. Practical instruction. Verse 26, righteous anger. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Honest work in verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Wholesome speech. This is one of my biggest weaknesses. Wholesome speech. I'm very sarcastic, and it's, it's, it's not a good thing when sarcasm means to tear down. That's what sarcasm is. Sarcasm tears down. That's my weakness. I'm a terror downer. That's not even a word. Wholesome speech. Do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Obedient living, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The choice to cast off, getting rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice or deceit. And verse 32, to love one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ in God forgave you. See, these are practical things. 
practical means. Now, I, I shared this yesterday at our leadership retreat, and I, I, I want you to sort of keep your finger there in that passage in regards the practical aspects of, of what it looks like to live and to follow the example that Jesus has set for us. Because as we carry on, we, we read of this condemnation in verse 9. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. But whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Now here's something you need to be... I shared maybe three or four weeks ago about how we live in a society of checks and balances. Checks and balances. Something happens, you pay it back. You get penalized, you offer it back and try to settle the debt, whatever it might be, okay? We live in this society and we live in this mindset and we live in this mindset even when it comes in relation to God. Now, what we read here though is not talking about just, just conduct. It's, it's more of a legal term. He's referring to the legal aspects of how one conducts themselves in a society because he says, if you have offended in one, you are guilty of all, becoming a transgressor of the law. Now, I had a picture when I was doing this before, which I, because I came from the retreat and really, there's a, if, if I had, if I had a link, uh, like a chain, if I had a chain and there were links in my chain and each link exemplified or represented one of God's Ten Commandments. Who can tell me what the first commandment is, by the way? No other gods? What's the second one? I want to see how well you got. Come on now. What's the second one? No images. Yeah, yeah. Don't anybody. What's the third one? Lord's name name. Fourth one? Seventh. Fifth one? Well done. Sixth one. Come on now, people. I want to choose. I want to choose one. Hey, what's the sixth one? Who, who can tell me the sixth one? Murder. Seven. Still eight. I, I, I know you all know them. They're just not in order. That's okay. Eight. Then you got no no lion and no lust. Okay. All right. Now. How many, okay, so if I'm, if I'm holding, I won't use John, if I'm, if I'm holding Sandra by this chain, how many links in the chain need to be broken for her to die? Just one. Just one. You just need to cut one link and bam, she's gone. So we have this idea, who said yay? We have this idea, we have this idea that when we break a law that we can make it back up again. What he says is that if you've broken one, you are guilty of all. Why? Because you've broken the whole law. You've broken one chain, yes, but you've broken the whole law, and therefore you are guilty of breaking all the law. You become lawbreakers. That's the reality of it. Case in point, I ran a red light. That was not fun. I did it completely by accident. Policeman penalized me for it. Now, straight away, we justify our wrongdoing and my justification was this come on man it's not like I killed someone come on man you surely have something better to do to focus on me because I ran one red light or the funniest one is what about all the red lights I've stopped at (laughs) surely all the red lights I've stopped at 
would surely outweigh the one red light I broke and ran through. Isn't that our reasoning? That's not, that's, that, see, that's our reasoning, but legally, I am guilty of breaking the law. Did I murder anyone? No, but I broke the law. Did I steal anything? Well, no, but I broke the law. What are we told within the Ten Commandments? You shall not lie. And I guarantee you, every single person in this room, myself included, we have broken that law. You know what that makes us? Lawbreakers. We have become transgressors of the law and therefore deserve punishment to pay the penalty for it. And that's what he's talking about here. So he, he talks about, firstly, he talks about, okay, if you're, if you're keeping this rule, loving others yourself, you're doing well. You're doing well. But the mentality is wrong because if you, if you keep the whole law and offend in one point, then you're guilty of all of it. What's the thing he's addressing here? Favoritism. Having a mind and a heart that is not in tune with God's heart and mind. That's what he's condemning. He's condemning that action. So, it, it, I mean, it doesn't matter how kind you are or whatever. You show, you show anything that's reflective of the heart of God, or you fail to show what is, what, that which is reflective of the heart of God, then you fall short of it. Now, here's the thing, and, and this is what I shared yesterday. This list that we are going through of things that we are to live by or, or manifest, these things don't reveal our spirituality. These things are manifest because of our spirituality. They are not indicators of how great we are. Rather, they are the outworkings of what is already existent within our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it is. See, all of these things here are indicators of where your heart is at with God. That's what it does. And I turn, turn to your Psalm 15 because I read this yesterday. And this is, for example... For example, and my encouragement, this is my encouragement, my challenge to you, is the fact that we, we, like, we like lists. We like lists. We like checklists. And even when I was reading this, as I was reading this, I, I, in my devotion, it's really funny how, how easy it is to fall into a routine of things, of going through the motions. Because I was reading this psalm, and I started reading, and it was really funny because all I was reading was words on a page. You see, you know what your devotion time is? You know what your quiet time is? See, we use this as a, uh, as a marker to get through. We use this and think, okay, I've done my duty by reading my, my Bible chapters. When the time you spend in God's Word, you know what this is to be? An opportunity to seek your Father. An opportunity to spend time in His presence. And so I was reading, and I read, I read verse 1. I said, Lord, who may dwell in your uh, sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain? The one who, and he goes on to this list, the one who does this, the one who does that. But I got to about verse three and I had to stop because I realized, hang on a sec, I missed the question. I missed the question. What is he asking? He's asking, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain? Who will be in your presence? Who will get to enjoy the intimacy with you? Who is the one that has the privilege to come and spend time in the face of your glory? Who gets to do this? That's the question. And I, I know that that's my, my desire. 
And I know that's, that's your desire. Your desire to sit there and see God in all his, all his magnificence, to see the Lord Jesus and the greatness of his love, the, 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 his mercy and his compassion demonstrated towards you. This is what we desire as Christians. And I know that's what we want. I know that's what we want. To, to feel the closeness of his spirit. I was talking with the brother, my brother David, and he was sharing with me just spending time in God's presence in prayer and feeling the spirit just wash over him and, and experiencing the intimacy of his relationship with God. That's what we all desire, to hear the voice of God and recognize the voice of God. And to hear it and recognize it and then respond to it. We all desire that. And this is what the question's asking. Who, who, who's going to be there? Who's going to do this? And he lists things. He says, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent, whoever does these things will never be shaken we read the same thing also in second peter chapter one where it says he who does these things would be neither barren nor unfruitful in the lord jesus christ we read these things we see the word does and automatically we go all right if i do that then this is what it ha- this is what should happen now all of those things from verse two to verse five i think although they're listed for us they are not a checklist for us to complete. What they are are the manifestation of the relationship one shares with those who spend time in a sacred tent, with those that dwell on his holy mountain. That's what that is, which is essentially this. When you look through everything, when you read about the partiality of the heart, you know what that's really about? That's about your heart condition. It's about your heart condition. It's not about the actions alone. It's about where is your heart at? This is what I've just read now in Psalm 15. That's about your heart and how it's manifest in what you do. And the reason why I focus on the heart is because next week, what do we look at? The whole relationship between faith and works. The relationship of the heart and the action. That's the emphasis of it. So, I had this great time talking with Jimmy and Joyce and Joanne Lee yesterday in in a discussion group. And the question that was asked was this. And I'm going to ask you this question before I close because I just want to, this is a bit of a challenge in this sense. If I was to ask you how your relationship with God is, would you say it's good or would you say it's bad? If I was to ask you how, how would you say your relationship with God is, would you say it's good or would you say it's bad? If you say it's good, how do you know? If I was to ask you, how do you know your relationship was good, how would you say that to me? What would you say? Would you say, well, I read my Bible this morning. Yeah. I, I went to church. I listened to Joe speak for 40 minutes. That's a chore. What would you say? How would you identify whether your relationship with God is good or not? And I guarantee you, most of the time, we will sit there and say, well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And then talking with Jimmy and Joyce, we would say, well, hang on a second. 
how do you know if, if you're married if you've got friends if you're in a relationship even if, you just, yeah, even if you just have friends how do you know you have a good relationship with your friend how do you know is it because you spend time with them now Jimmy shared and Joyce shared about open communication you interact you commune all, all I'm saying is this the way you gauge a good relationship is not by a checklist is it it is not by a checklist the way you gauge your relationship is the, as what was shared, the vulnerability, the, the communion, the interaction, the being with someone. That's how it is. Once again, that being with someone is indicative of your heart. So I guess the question wouldn't be sort of like, how do you know have a good relationship? How is your heart? How is your heart? How is your heart with your relationship with your Savior? How's your heart with the, the, the intimacy that you spend time with? How's your heart when you open the word? Are you, are you truly seeking him or to get through another task? How is, how is your heart that when he speaks, do you actually hear him? Or when he does, when you do hear him, do you abide by that? How is your heart? See, this, as I read through this, and you see partiality, all I see there are, are character traits of where a person's heart is. Which brings it back to me. Where is my heart? Where is my heart as a pastor and how I care for you? Where is my heart as a friend when I talk with you? Where is my heart as a husband when I care for my wife? Where is my heart? And this, this is the challenge that, that, I, that I, I leave with you this morning. That we won't be so consumed with the outward action all the time, but the whole idea, the whole idea, and I spoke about this, and it may seem somewhat contradictory as to what I talked about last week. Like religion, religion is important to God. Yes, we talked about that last week. Religion is important to God. Ceremony is important to God. But once again, those things are important for the purpose of what? Of your relationship with Him. The reasons why he set ritual and religion and all those things in place was so that he might meet with his people and he might commune with his people. Once again, that's, that's a focus on the heart because God desires to draw your heart to his. He doesn't want us to be like the Pharisees that though we worship him with our lips, yet our hearts are far from him. That's, that's what we need to measure up to, that our hearts... Uh, measure up which then expressed in our lips does that make sense so what I'm going to do is ask the music team to come up I would like look I I don't know where you're at I don't know where you're at spiritually and there's so much more my my prayer is you will continue to read through James because as you read through James I, I want you to read for the purpose of Lord where are you in this manifest yourself in your word, through your word, for us. And, and that he might take the truth of his word and bring about his purposes in each of our lives. Not out of obligation, not out of duty, but out of a genuine desire, a genuine desire to have our hearts changed for his glory. So, no, no, that's all good, that's all good. That's all good. While, while they're about to get started, how, how has everybody been going through James? Has everyone been reading through James? One chapter a day. Has everyone been finding that all right? Yeah? Can, can you hands up those who have been reading James, please? Oh, that's good. That's more than last week. That's, that's really cool. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, how many of you have been sharing with somebody what you've been reading? 
Okay, okay. Bless others with what you read. If I don't have your email, send, give me, see me after church, give me your email address. I want to I give you a gift as well, okay? So uh, with that, we'll be upstanding. We'll sing our final song. Thank you very much.
Father, as we stand here in your presence, we want to see you now. Father, give us eyes to see the love in your eyes. Father, give us ears to hear your loving voice encouraging us to move on. Father, we ask that you give us a heart that is sensitive to your spirit, that as he prompts, we might obey, not out of duty, not out of obligation, but because you have drawn our hearts to be in line with yours. Father, we cry out for your help. We cry out for you to work. We cry out because we need you. We ask you to dismiss us now, and as we go into the coming week, we, as your people, will represent you, the love that you have shown, the grace that has been bestowed, and the mercy that has been imparted, that we might represent you clearly, a light in the darkness, drawing all people to yourself. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. Unto you be glory in the church. Unto you be glory in our lives. Unto you be glory in all creation, both now and forever, to the end of the age. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. We would love to pray for you this morning. Please don't be shy. The prayer team will be up the front.